Good morning and Merry Christmas again. So we're here at the end of Advent. Oh, the kids, are the kids? Yeah, the kids can go. Sorry, we did not announce that, did we? The kids can go. I think they have cake today. So if you all want to pretend you're a kid and go get cake. So here we are at the end of Advent. As we celebrate Christmas and Christmas Eve today, and we've talked about hope, joy, and peace, and today our sermon topic is love, in keeping with the traditional Advent calendar, love, and specifically love in the coming of Jesus, in the coming of Christ. Because if you back up, we're going to talk all about love today, so I'm going to define it and think about all that, but what does the best display of love actually look like? Well, that's Jesus. That's his work on the cross. And how can our lives be moved and changed by this love? What should it do for you and do for me as we reflect on the cross and as we look at that in our passage today? As we come toward the end of this Advent season, I want to direct us toward the ultimate display of love, and that is, of course, Jesus. And so we're going to see his love in a couple different ways. First, through his coming, His coming in human flesh, that is the incarnation, is the word we use for that. Through Jesus' incarnation, he loved us. And then Jesus also loved us through his sacrifice on the cross, because it didn't just end with that Christmas and the baby in the manger, right? He continued on to the cross. And so his love has both of those components in it. But then finally, we're also going to look at today how his love impacts us and leads us to love others. Because if God loved, then we can love as a result of that. So I want to start out by defining love in a biblical way. And the reason I want to do this, since we're talking so much about love today, is I think for many of us, if not most of us, when we first think about love or try to define it, we're probably defining love in a pagan way or in the way that our our culture would define it and not in a Christian way. And so we kind of have to reprogram our minds here a little bit and learn to define love the way God would define it, right? Because as Christians, that is what we want to do. We want to define things and do things the way God does them. So, first thing we got to recognize about love, recognize that it's a moral attribute of God or an element of God. So, the way that we define love is going to stem directly from who God is. It's going to stem from his character because it's based in God's character. And love is knowable because... God is knowable. Okay, so love comes straight out of his character. And then also, love, the love of God, is what you would call a communicable attribute. So that's, and you know, you're like communicable. What on earth? It's like a communicable disease, right? I think that's a bad thing, right? We've all had it the last few weeks. If I start coughing, by the way, you know. But no, a, a communicable attribute of God is something that we can share in. So it's something that God is, but we can also be at least a part of. And love is, is that. God is love, but we can also display love. And there would be certain attributes of God that are not communicable like that, um, which means that we can't share in them. They have no counterpart in humans. An example of that would be like God's omniscience. He knows everything. We don't know everything. And so there are certain attributes we don't share, but love we do share, and we can share particularly as believers— If you're a believer in Jesus, you can particularly share this one. And so the definition, here's how I'm going to define it. And this definition 
doesn't come from me. It comes from Wayne Grudem. So if you don't like it, go, go bother Wayne Grudem. He actually lives here in Phoenix. He's a professor. But his definition of love, and I think this is good. The reason I picked it is because I do think it's good. He says, God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. So God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. Now, what you notice about that is that definition has nothing to do with feelings, as would so often be the case in culture. God's love means that he gives of himself to others. So it's not necessarily so much about feelings, but it has to do with actions, specifically God's ongoing actions. And love also contrasts with selfishness, actions that are self-serving. He gives of himself for the benefit of others rather than doing for the benefit of self, although he does for his own glory. But love is an action, and we're going to talk about that a lot today, how love is an others-serving action. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in action and in truth. So the greatest love is in action and in truth, and we need to know and we need to remember that love is indeed based in truth and in action and in God's character, and it proceeds and it flows out of him. So essentially, love is what God is like. And as we talk about his attributes, love is really high on the list. I'm always going to say that holiness is maybe primary, but love is really high up too on the list of God's attributes. So, all that being said, the groundwork being laid, let's read our text for today, 1 John 4, 9-11. through 11. Turn with me there if you're not already in the Bibles. That is our text for today, 1 John 4, 9-11, through 11, love in the coming of Christ. Verse 9, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. So there is love as revealed through Jesus. The first thing I want to look at here now, Love revealed through Jesus' coming, that is his incarnation. So remember, the first thing we see, God loved us and so he sent his son. And as I read this passage, maybe some of you as you're reading along with me, what does it sound, what other famous passage does this sound a lot like in scripture? John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever would believe in him would not perish and have everlasting life. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Very similar. John is pulling from from the same playbook here, it seems. And so God's love prompts God to send his son to go in order to redeem, again, to give of himself. And so the first place that we see God's love at work here in this passage is it being revealed in the incarnation, in Jesus' coming. And notice again, to point out, just to reiterate, God's love is shown through actions. The action is sending his son into human flesh. It's not simply a feeling, it is an action. And this is the Christmas story at work. And many of you, I'm sure, have read the Christmas stories, the account in Luke. But this is what it is at work. God giving of himself by sending his only son into the world. Now, if you step back and think about this claim, the incarnation, it's kind of crazy in a sense. 
Because what we're saying is the God that created the whole universe, when you stand outside at night, you look at that massive universe out there. And you've got the God that created that whole universe. And what he decided to do was to send his son into this little backwater speck 2,000 years ago, this little tiny place and this little tiny planet in this huge galaxy, send him to Israel to be born and to be born as a human in human flesh. And that's really kind of a crazy claim if you think about it, isn't it? I think some of us, we've been Christian for a long time. And so the wonder of that doesn't maybe hit us the way it once did, but that's a wild claim to say that the God of all the universe became a human. And he did that in this little tiny place 2,000 years ago. But before we actually get into and talk about Jesus' coming and the incarnation, I want to point something out to you. And that's that God didn't have to send his son in human flesh. We often think we're owed it as though Jesus had to come and God had to do this for us because we're so great. But that's just not the case. Because ever since the fall of Adam, humans have been in what kind of state? A sinful state, a rebellious state, at war with God. We are actually born at war, fighting with God, whether we want to believe it or not. And so God would have been perfectly justified to just leave us like that. He would have been perfectly okay to just leave us in our sin, leave us in our misery, to leave all of mankind on a pathway toward hell. But so often do you fall into bad thinking and do you think that Jesus, that God somehow owed you his salvation? That he owed you that free offer? Because then it's not really free, is it? Like he had to send Jesus because I was so good, but God didn't owe you anything. He didn't owe me anything. He did it out of love for you and I. And so God would have been perfectly fine within himself. He didn't have to send his son the love that comes from within the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity, and that's a whole cool discussion that we could get into another day. But God was happy. He was fine in and of himself. The fact that he chose and desired to send his son shows how much he cares about you. But also, okay, so I want to point that out. He didn't have to come, but he chose to. I also want to point out that the revealing of God's love in the incarnation, in the sending Jesus, was covenantal. Uh, It was not unfocused. It was not formless. It was not just a vague, general, generic love, but it was actually rather specific. And when I use the term covenant, a covenant is an unbreakable agreement. A covenant is uh, something that God does in this sense with humanity. Now, we form covenants too, a marriage covenant, for instance. I have a special, unique love for my wife, that is different than the way I love the rest of you. And so God forms a covenant with his people, and he has a special, unique kind of love for his people that is different than everyone else. And this covenant that involved sending Jesus was established with the people of God many, many years before Jesus, right? Hundreds and hundreds of years before, many centuries before Jesus even came, this is what God said. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 says, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will raise up a righteous branch for David and he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. 
This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So he has this special type of love. Do you see it here for his people, for Judah, for Israel, and ultimately for the Israel of God, which is believers? And that special love compels him to go and to make a covenant and to send his son when he doesn't have to do any of that. So all that being said, if God's love is revealed to us through the incarnation, through Jesus and his coming, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what is the incarnation and why is it really, really necessary for your salvation and for us to have life? Well, the word incarnation if you look at where it comes from, it's actually a Latin term. It comes from a Latin term, and it means to make flesh. Just to make flesh. So it's the act of God, God the Son, where he takes to himself a human nature. And so what you've got to realize about this is this isn't just God in a man suit. It's not like a temporary covering, but Jesus is actually a human. He is a man. He is a person completely, and he retains his humanity to this day. And this is quite the miracle, that he comes and he joins and he becomes human fully, completely, not just some covering, but he is a man to this day. Now, a critic, many people, I think materialists, would just dismiss this as impossible, right? They're just going to say, well, that's not possible. But other critics, for instance, maybe a Muslim would look at this idea and they might say that, well, God can't take on a human nature. God can't take on a human nature because anything that is not God would be imperfect, would be corrupted somehow. And so the incarnation would then require God, who is perfect, to join himself to something that is imperfect. And so that might be the objection from a religious standpoint. But I think the answer to that is that as long as God could create a perfect human nature, and he could and he did, then that's exactly what he intended, and that nature is by definition perfect. Do you track with me? Does that make sense? If we look at human nature before the fall, was it corrupted? In Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2, was human nature corrupt? No. And so if God is joining himself to that kind of human nature, he created all of that and said it is good. And so he can do that. And this is the kind of human nature took on, that Jesus took on. Now, if he took on a corrupt human nature, that'd be a whole other thing. But that's not what we're arguing. That's not what we're here in the incarnation. Philippians 2, 7 through 8. It says this. Instead, he, Jesus, emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. So we'll talk about that death on a cross here in a moment, but I want you to catch the first part. He assumed the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. He came as a man. And so why was this coming necessary for you? Why is it so important? Why do we gather and have a Christmas festival? Why is it necessary for salvation? Because we need a Redeemer who was fully human. We need a human to stand in place for humans, to represent us. The way Adam represented us poorly and condemned us all to sin, we need a human representative to represent us rightly before God. And so that is what Jesus goes and does. 
And so why must the Redeemer be fully human? Because we need a representative who was, number one, obedient. He was obedient to God. And the only life that is acceptable to God is one of perfection, is one of never sinning. We like to think that we're pretty good. And because we're pretty good and we only sin a little bit, that could somehow be acceptable to God. And we couldn't be more wrong. We need a man who is perfect. And you and I will never fit that bill. Our first human representative, again, is Adam. He dramatically fails in regard to obedience. And so Jesus had to be a human And he had to be a perfect human in order to represent us, in order to save us. He had to have both of those elements to represent us in perfection. Romans 5, 18 through 19. So then, as through one trespass, that's Adam's trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also, through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone, For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We need an obedient redeemer, right? There is a justification leading to life, and it comes from our obedient redeemer. He had to be fully human, and he had to be fully obedient, and he was. So what then does this incarnation accomplish? If Jesus came and he did this and he was fully human and he was perfect and he didn't sin even though he was tempted, what does it accomplish? Well, ultimately it brings us life. Look back in verse 9 that we read in 1 John here, our main text. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world in order that we might live, that we might live through him so we might have life. In that verse we just read in Romans 5.18, there is justification leading to life. All right, The implication here is that there is also death, that the opposite of this would be death. And so this life is eternal life with Jesus rather than a punishment in hell, and we'll touch on that more in a moment. But what is the incarnation doing? It's accomplishing life for you and for me, for all who believe, for all who will put their trust in Jesus. So, imagine this with me for a moment. A God who is perfect, a God who is joyful and happy and content in and of himself and staying away from the huge mess of humanity, and he could have done this, but he doesn't. He didn't choose to steer clear of the mess. He came to redeem us. And so, when we think of the incarnation, remember this. We don't love our way up to God, but he loved his way down to us. What you have to know from this passage, God revealed his love and he gave of himself by becoming human through Jesus. And so what's our response to all that? Well, thankfulness. How thankful we can be on Christmas. Like Scott was talking about, there is a lot that goes on on a Christmas that can distract you and tire you out sometimes. But are we looking back to Jesus in thankfulness? That instead of staying far off, instead of keeping away from us as he could have, he came to us and he dwelt with us in human form. Jesus came near to us and he became one of us. So are you thankful today? Does that bring you thanks? Does that bring you joy when you remember that fact? Some of you have heard it because you've been a Christian for many years and you've sat through Christmas sermons and you know about God's love for you. But are you remembering it today and are you thankful? And does it lead you to want to worship him? 
to worship when you realize that he did this for you, for his people. So that's first. God's love is revealed. It's revealed through Jesus. But then there's a second thing here. Verse 10. God's love is accomplished. Something is done and it's finished. It is accomplished through Jesus' sacrifice. Verse 10. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Some of you might have memorized that verse, right? As a child, you remember that one. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And so he sent his son. And so God's love is once again, once again, it's not a feeling here, is it? It's an action. So God's love is once again shown in an action, first with the incarnation, but then secondly, in the atoning sacrifice. This is the CSB's uh, version's way of translating it. It calls it an atoning sacrifice. Depending on your translation, if you're not reading a CSB, it might use the word propitiation. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that's just a big theological churchy word that means the appeasement of God's wrath, the quieting and calming of God's wrath against sin. And so that's what Jesus did. And so when God sets his mind upon a task, he'll do it. Nothing can deter him. Nothing can hold him back from the objective. But I want to point out again that this atoning sacrifice, this propitiation, appeasing of God's wrath, was not made by anything we did. Again, it's not about us. It's about what Jesus did. And in the same way we see in this passage, it's not because we loved God. He's very, he, he goes to like links to point that out, right? It's not that we loved God. It's not. But it's that he loved us. And so let's not think too highly of ourselves. Again, let's point the picture back to Jesus. Always be pointing it back to Jesus, not thinking too highly of ourselves. Because again, we sometimes want to think this, right? It's just our corrupt nature. It's just our sinfulness. We want to think we're great. We want to think we're loving. We want to compare ourselves to other people and see how amazing we are. But in our natural state, guys, if, if, if you're a Christian here today, and if Jesus hadn't saved you, you would not love him. You would have no desire to love him back. You loved him because he first loved you, right? And that's scripture. And so let's not think too highly of ourselves. Let's Realize that we hated God. We were at war with him. We opposed him. We are absolutely not loving him. And if you aren't a Christian today, here's the scary thing. You still stand in opposition to God. And you have the choice of do you want to oppose God or do you want to follow God? And you've got to pick a side. There's no middle ground. There's no standing on the fence. You either oppose God or you follow God. And here, the call is to follow him. And because we follow him, now we love him. The reason that Christians even love God now is in response to his love for us. Our love, what small measure we can give, is in response. It's only after we've been born again, now we reciprocate some love toward God. And it's still very small in proportion to what he can do in terms of his love for us. So I asked you before, Why was the incarnation necessary? Why was Jesus coming in human form necessary? Why couldn't God just snap his fingers and say, your sins are forgiven and not have to send Jesus? Well, in the last section, we said the Redeemer must be fully human, right? Because we need a Redeemer who lived a sinless, obedient life. He's got to be obedient. But there's another reason that Jesus had to be fully human in order to be our substitute sacrifice, 
So he's got to be obedient. But then number two, a man would have to die to pay the penalty for the sins of mankind. Remember, he's our representative. Some of you might use the term federal head. You've heard that term of a federal headship. And so Jesus is the representative. He's the man who had to be obedient, but he also had to be the sacrifice. Hebrews 2.17, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. He had to be like us in order to be our high priest. Do you remember the high priests in the Old Testament? They would go to the temple. They would make sacrifices, uh, particularly on the Day of Atonement. They would make a, a sacrifice for the people that was meant to cover all the people. And that is what Jesus is doing for all Christians. He's the fully human, fully sinless substitute sacrifice for all who trust in him. And the sacrifice for mankind had to be a part of mankind. So he had to be born in that manger as a baby in order that he might eventually go and do this and be the high priest and be the sacrifice. I also want to come back and think about this phrase, atoning sacrifice. What does that mean, propitiation? And I also want to set us up with a dilemma. That dilemma being that God is holy, but people are sinful. Now, if God is holy then his holiness can't handle our unholiness. It can't be near him. It can't be around him. It can't contaminate him. Our terrible, our putrid rebellion against God, he can't be around that. And therefore, God has another attribute. He has wrath against sinners. And propitiation, as we said, it's the appeasement or it's the aversion, the turning of that wrath, the satisfaction, you might say, of God's wrath. And that is what Jesus accomplished through his sacrifice on the cross. He offered himself to be punished, for himself to take upon that wrath. But it was you who deserved the wrath. It was me who deserved the wrath. We deserved that punishment instead. But what happened when he went to the cross? The wrath was diverted. God had wrath toward you and toward your sin, but it was diverted on toward Jesus for all who believe for all who trust in him. And maybe you've wondered, you know, we talk about these attributes of God. You've got his holiness and you've got his love and then you've got his wrath. And have you ever wondered, is God's wrath really something worth talking about? It's kind of implicit in the term here for for atoning sacrifice, for propitiation. But I think it is worth talking about. I think it is worth thinking about and even praying about. But it's important because if you lose the wrath of God, all of a sudden, you also lose the love of God as the Bible defines it. It's hard to define and to know God's love if you don't know and don't acknowledge and don't understand his wrath. Romans 5, 8 through 9 says that God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, that's his blood on the cross, will we be saved through him from wrath. See, there it is. Do you see how God proves his own love for us? And this is all out of, what does he do? Saves us through him from wrath. He proves his love by saving you from the wrath of God. And so Jesus appeased the wrath of God on the cross. This is a glorious truth. This is central to the Christian faith. He goes, he appeases the wrath of God on the cross. He dies He was not abandoned in Hades, Acts 2.31. 
He left sin in the grave. He conquered it. He took dominion over it. And he resurrected out of the grave so that you might walk in the newness of life. And God accomplished this. He did this. He gave of himself. Because what his love desired was to save a people. Save a people for his own glory. And you, if you believe, are part of that people. So what should be, again, our response in all this? Is it just a fact we file away and then we go get a bunch of presents and drink some eggnog and have fun? Or is there more to this? Have we taken joy in what Jesus did this Christmas season? What he did on your behalf, what he did on my behalf. When was the last time you rejoiced and thanked God for what he did in sending his son as a baby to grow and to take this wrath that you deserved? My encouragement for you today is that, no, I don't know what's going to go on in these next few days. If you're going to have trouble, if you're going to have a lot of joy, maybe you get a really cool present, that brings you some joy. But I want to encourage you to have a different kind of joy, a joy that comes from knowing that you have a king, you have a God, you have a ruler who loves you more than anyone else ever could. And so he did this. He sent his son incarnate to die on the cross to appease his wrath against sin. Or, as we Christians, as we take that joy this week, as we have happiness in that, maybe you still need God's wrath appeased toward you. Only Jesus can do that, and so you look to him. Isaiah says, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. He says this about God, for I am the Lord and there is no other. And so you need to look to God in order to have your, the wrath appeased that God has against you. Isn't that quite the dichotomy? that you look to him in order to save you from him. And that brings us to our central truth today. What can we know from this little passage in 1 John? These three verses. True love was displayed through Jesus in his coming and in his sacrifice. True love is displayed in his coming and in his sacrifice. And so if we learn anything from this passage, it's that love is through Jesus defined by what Jesus did. He came incarnate and he sacrificed on the cross. So then what is your response now? It's not just joy. It's not just thankfulness toward him. The final thing, verse 11, if Jesus did this for you, dear friends, (laughs) y'all hear that? This thing is distracted. Boy, that candle just went wild. I'm glad we've got the plastic down there. So then what, what do we do? What's our final response, guys? Look at verse 11 with me. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, did he love us in this way? Yes, he did. If God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. So there's the response. If God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. And the love of God for us, his covenant people, then produces a reaction in us. If we have been the beneficiaries of God's love, we now turn around and reflect that love back toward others. God displayed it to us. It bounces off us and through us, and it goes back to others. And particularly in this context, it's actually loving our fellow believers. God's love comes from us into our fellow Christians. And I do want to emphasize that contextually. In this passage, at least, We're talking about love, and we're talking about loving other Christians. We're not necessarily talking about 
loving non-Christians, although you definitely need to do that. But it's a different kind of love here. It's a love for your brothers and sisters in the faith. And that's not saying we don't love those outside the body of Christ. We do. But it's to say that we have a special love for those in the body of Christ. Those you sit next to every week, come to church with, come to a community group with, break bread with. Our duty as Christians is to take care of each other and love each other first, and then take care of all those outside the body of Christ as we have ability. And so he's pointing us to love one another as Christians. So, two different responses here I want you to think about. Two different responses God's love should produce in us. Second, we're going to talk about about loving each other. But first is a love for God in return. If God loved you, then you should love him. We're thankful for what God did for us. We're thankful that he sent his son and we see his great majesty. We see his power, his dominion over the earth. And so we begin to give thanks and we begin to worship him. We sing songs, we pray to him, we read the scripture, and we worship God. In primary, though, here's the thing we don't often think about. Primary in that worship of God is a desire to keep God's commandments, right? We desire to keep God's commandments because we love him out of his love for us. 1 John 5.3, if you just go over the next chapter, John continues on this theme of love. He talks about it a lot. 1 John 5.3, for this is what God, for the, excuse me, for this is what love for God is. So again, he's trying to de- define this to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. Love for God is to keep his commands. It's not just to sing his songs and pray to him and read his word. It is all those things, but it's also to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. Why? Because he's changed our hearts to love his commands. Our hearts want to honor God through obedience, and so as God's love comes into us and produces love for others, it also produces love for him. It produces a love for him and his word. And again, what do we see here with this idea of following God's commands? We see that love is shown through actions. It's shown through doing. And again, that's why I like that definition so much, that it's not just the feeling, it's the action. John's making clear here, it's the action of keeping his commands. And so, for you, as a Christian, do you have that desire to keep his commands? Do you love his commands as you recognize his love for you? Perhaps not perfectly, not always, but is that growing in you? Is that changing in you? Do you see that desire to keep his commands, to love him back? And again, the second response, what else? What else does his love do for you? It's that God's love produces in us a love for others a love for others in the way that God loves them, in an imitation of the way God loves them. Romans 3, 8 through 10. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So you see that in order to love your neighbor, you come back to a desire to fulfill God's commands. In truth, you speak truth, 
and you fulfill God's commands toward that person when you love them. And so love for God and love for your neighbor, for your fellow Christian in particular, are, are, are grounded in keeping the commands, in loving the commands. 1 John 3.23, I told you this book talks a lot about love. 1 John 3.23, now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. That we believe. Do you believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ? And not just, oh yeah, 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 he's a real guy. But do you trust? Do you follow in the name of his son, Jesus Christ? And then, do you love each other, fellow brothers and sisters, as he commanded us? Because if we truly love someone, I want you to think about, just take, pick a person. Pick your spouse, pick your neighbor, pick your brother. If we truly love someone, that love is displayed by treating them in a certain way, by treating them in accordance with God's standards, by keeping his commands toward them. And so, how do we pull this all together? We can say this, following God's commands and love, loving each other, are not inconsistent with one another. In fact, they flow together, they complement one another very well. And the one who keeps his commands, John says again, the one who keeps his commands remains in him, and he in him, that's Jesus. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. So again, we remain in him when we keep his commands. And do you know, are you in Jesus? You have to know that for a fact. You have to know it to be true. Do you know if you've passed over from death into life? Do you know for sure? today. How do you know if that's happened to you? Well, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. If you've crossed over from death to life, if you've become a true Christian, a true believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells within you and he helps you to love your brothers because you wouldn't on your own, but the Holy Spirit does it through you. And so it's very clear in scripture that God's love love for us produces love from us. It bounces back. It radiates back. And so let's bring this home on a level of application. Who are you having trouble with? Somebody, right? Isn't there somebody you're having trouble with? I think, probably. Well, love them. Keep God's commandments toward them. Who do you have a distance with? Who is there the the distance forming between you and them? Well, love them. That's God's command. Get closer to them. Love them and keep God's commands toward them as he did to you. He got closer to you by coming in human flesh. And so that's his command to you. Get closer to them and love them. And remember that that love means giving of yourself to others. It's not just having a warm feeling toward them. It's giving of yourself to them. It's doing. So our call to response today, to finish it all up, what do we do? Because God has shown you love, love God and love others in response. Love God, love others in response. You always hear that, right? It's kind of like this little slogan that some churches use. Love God, love others. And it's true because that's the commandments. And so we're to love God and to love others in response to what he has done for us. So this Christmas season, what do we do? We go and we love God. We love others. We enjoy Christmas together. And also, I want to remind you that loving someone means sharing Jesus with them. 
If you love them, you care for them, you share Jesus this Christmas season. Maybe some of you will have opportunities to do that. Share Jesus. And this is so that others might know the originator of love, who is our great Savior, who is Jesus. So let's rejoice, let's be thankful, let's pray to him now, but let's also go and let's show that love to other people. Pray with me. Father, we come before you and we rejoice. We are thankful that you have sent your son, that as we close up this Advent season and this Christmas season, and as we come before you, we remember that you loved us, that you loved us so much you sent your son into the world. And Lord, we we think about that and we say that sometimes, but may it really penetrate our hearts today. May we recognize that your love for us is greater than any other love we've ever known. And Lord, out of that love that you have for us, may we rejoice, may we love you back, may we seek to follow your commands, may we seek to love others. Lord, we pray you would make us a joyful people, a fruitful people, in our love for each other. Lord, be with us this Christmas season. Send your Holy Spirit to walk alongside us, to encourage us. And Lord, that we might follow you, that we might be the people you've called us to be, to be a light here on this earth, to be heralds and messengers proclaiming that you give life to all who come to you, to know that apart from you, there is no life, there is only darkness. So Lord, help us to be your people here today. Help us to rejoice in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.